There is treasure in and beyond your pain. What you seek is seeking you, beloved. To feel, transmute and alchemize pain is your power. And this power is within you right now. If you'll only give yourself permission to access it. To tune in to the truth of who you are. To allow the healing of your soul. Self-healer. Rise. Hi beloveds and welcome back to Beautifully Empowered. I hope everyone is having a lovely day. I am so happy to share this conversation that I had with Langston Khan. I'm currently reading his book, Deep Liberation, Shamanic Teachings for Reclaiming Wholeness in a Culture of Trauma. So I am really happy and delighted and honoured to be able to get Langston on here. Langston Khan is a New York City-based shamanic practitioner specialising in emotional healing and radical transformation. He stands firmly at the crossroads, his practice informed by inner relationship focusing, initiations into traditions of the African diaspora, the contemporary shamanic tradition of the last mass community, and the guidance of his helping spirits and ancestors weaving it all together. I am so excited. I love when I'm speaking to someone and I'm also reading their work and I'm just like, I am so glad that I actually get to speak to you. So... Langston covers quite a lot. He really goes into shamanism from his perspective and, and the, the type of shamanism that he practices as a practitioner. He talks a lot about having respect for the earth and the land and we go into colonialism and how the identification with that and the current systems within ourselves allows the earth and ourselves to suffer. He talks about racism. He talks about triggers and how to heal them. He gives um, some wonderful shamanic tools to heal he also talks about self-initiation and so much more. And at the end, he also gives a beautiful 10-minute ground in visualization. And I literally was at the end of the conversation, as you'll be able to hear. I was so drowning out because it was Friday evening when I recorded this podcast anyway, so two days ago from when you're hearing this now, because today is Sunday. And I was already quite tired that that evening. And I was just like, oh, I was so, so, so appreciative of the grounding technique because I literally needed to be grounded so I really appreciated that um he also talks about patriarchy and how that keeps us out of um this beautiful flow and relationship with ourselves which obviously ultimately keeps us out of flow um in terms of our relationships with those around us and the earth and yeah just a really beautiful conversation that I think that a lot of you will be able to take a lot from this podcast I think you'll appreciate it without further ado because I will waffle on Here's Langston Khan. What is shamanic wisdom, Langston? Mm, that's a big question. So it's a very big question. It helps to, uh, to, to go back a bit and, and define how I use the term shamanism. Um, mm-hmm. in, a, in a way, it's a very fraught term because it's a word that's been extremely overused and abused in ways that are very sort of appropriative and extractive. Um, when we look at the original word, it's it's a word coming out of um, you know different cultures, uh, you know Siberian, Mongolian cultures that use this term to describe a specific 
type of healer, a specific type of role um, mm. in their communities that had to do with the tending of balance between the individual and their own soul, the soul and, or you know individual soul and their family, the family and their community and the community and their environment and sort of mm. environment being also synonymous with the invisible world and the physical world together as the spirit world and the environment being very intertwined. Mm. And so in a sense, the shaman is the one in part tending that balance. There's a lot of other specific um, cultural context to how that role is practiced within those traditional cultures. But then the Romanian religious scholar, Mir Celiare, took this word and used it, and he used his own sort of academic capital at the time as a respected religious scholar to then apply that word cross-culturally to say that actually this, this kind of role of tending this type of balance through moving between the invisible and physical world through these different mm -hmm. ways of navigating trance states is actually an essential human function that you find in many different human cultures around the world. And at the time in academia, people embodying those kind of traditional ways were seen as either sort of hucksters or just crazy. And so he was putting forward this idea in academia that, no, we need to pay attention and study these cultures anthropologically with respect versus through a sort of materialist, solely, um, you know, Christian lens. And yes. that then, you know, for better, for worse, that ended up becoming a term that got adopted by contemporary movements such as core shamanism where this person, Michael Harner, was then going around the world um, and studying with different indigenous elders and teachers and then extracting what he felt as a contemporary you know, white man was the mm. most essential elements of these cultures that other people in you know, settler colonialist modernist culture mm -hmm. could use to begin to repair their own relationship with spirit and these energies of the invisible world. And so mm -hmm. in some ways that's wonderful in that people begin who had sort of lost in their own culture, any connection to these practices begin getting an opportunity to reforge that relationship. But in other ways it was very problematic and harmful in that um, he was divorcing spiritual technologies from their cultural context. And that can be very harmful when that happens because yeah. it's really important to hold, in, in my experience, spiritual technologies within a coherent cosmology, a sort of compass for how we navigate life. Because otherwise mm. we're just porting those tools into the cosmology or almost anti-cosmology of things like capitalism and yes. just using these tools to learn how to be better capitalists, be more extractive to the world and our environment. And so in a sense, it becomes sorcery. <gasps> I love that. I love so, that. That is, sorry, go ahead. Sorry, I just- Oh, no, no, please, like, I'm sorry. Yeah. Interrupt you. No, like interrupt yeah. you for a second there. That was just so perfectly communicated. And I love that because I think the, like, even the understanding of sorcery is quite interesting which a lot of people probably don't understand, but or understand. But I love that you, what you pointed out there about balance as well. I, d I don't want to just 
I don't want to speak too much, but I just want you to, um, sorry, just carry on. Basically. I'm just waffling basically. No, no, I appreciate, I appreciate you, you, you pausing me for a second. I can get kind of <laughs> on this topic. Especially. <laughs> I love um, it. Yeah. And so with, um, well, even just to talk briefly about how I think about shamanism versus sorcery, and this is a perfect yes. definition, but in this sort of anthropological context of this cross-cultural definitions of shamanism versus sorcery, um, in sorcery, there's this sense of the individual's will and their needs being put above anything else. And you can mm. look at anything else as the needs of the community, but also as even more importantly, the sort of flow of life itself, the flow of the earth, right? Relationship with life, like their mm. needs become the priority. It could be in alignment with life, but it could be not. And mm. so whereas with shamanism, that power is being sourced from this, this flow of life itself that we're working to come into relationship with that flow and co-create with that flow effectively. So we can be as humanity, for example, that part of the organism of all of life that humanity is meant to embody and meant to be in that sort of larger organism of, of all life itself. And so just like a heart has a certain function, humanity has a specific function mm. within that organ of all of life. Or, I love that. I love yeah. that because the ana anagram of heart even is earth, isn't it? Or if you look at earth, mm -hmm. it's heart. Yeah. I love that because um, would you say that like, from, from what I'm picking up here is that like sorcery is more about taking really it's, it's it appears to me that it's more energetically taking would you would you say that it's more taking um and shamanism it can is be it can mm. be i mean really at its essence it, a good a good ex cognate in our um contemporary understanding is like factory farming yes. sorcery is that which is a solution that seems more expedient in the moment but has a much higher cost in the long term so, wow. for example, with factory farming, you know, it seems like, oh, great, we have the solution to feed all these people that need food for a lower price. That's great. What's wrong with that? But then we see how the land that's left after factory farming is completely toxic and can't be farmed for generations, you know, and so... Depleting the earth. Yeah, exactly. And so it's similar in how I look at sorcery as this thing that seems expedient in the moment, but, but potentially has a much higher cost long term when there's mm -hmm. when you're not moving with this flow of life i love that and i think that like you know it's not really about what i think i'm just <laughs> communicating based on my experience here is that when you are in the flow and for me i'll, I'll be really honest like as, as much as i meditate and i've taught meditation and things like that i have to really be so aware of being in the present moment and and sometimes as, I, as i'm moving throughout my day realizing how tense my body is and how not in the present moment I am and, and how you know I'm not even aligned with my own breath and how much of how much of um how do I communicate this how much I experience um detachment from all of life when I'm not in the flow do you know what I mean mm -hmm. and I suppose like if we're making big worldwide decisions and we're not in the flow or not in the present moment and we're not in right relationship with ourselves and others and the earth and animals and the planet and whatnot it's just an unconscious mess. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Aww. And so it's understood in indigenous cultures around the world mm -hmm. that 
we're not just humans aren't great at naturally just staying in that flow that we need practices sure. we need community support we need family support. you know we need these different cultural foundations and especially we need ritual to mm. keep us in alignment with that larger flow and remember how to be human beings how to be that that part that organ in that larger organism of life that we're meant to be and so to me that's a big part of shamanism those kind of practices now that you just said that <laughs> can you talk about like your personal experience if, if that's something that's okay um as a um shamanic healer absolutely yeah and so i maybe just to bridge a little bit t towards that with what we were just talking yeah. about i i feel so when i talk about shamanism um mm -hmm. and i describe myself as working within the context of a shamanism i think yes. of myself as using the sort of small s word so it's mm -hmm. not like the specific big as shamanism practiced by say mm -hmm. the like people you know that that comes out of you know siberia mongolia but it's this more cross-cultural term to describe this specific role and specific way of being on the earth and so mm -hmm. um when I, it, I i practice a contemporary shamanic tradition that comes out of authentic initiatory experiences but it is really about how do we as contemporary people in a broken culture from this broken path where our culture has abandoned ritual and is no longer tending the gates of birth, initiation to, into adulthood, um, eldership and death, how do we sort of initiate ourselves into a kind of spiritual <sighs> community through practice and co-creation with spirit? That. Yeah, so we can then um, work to remember how, how to be in this way on the earth, in this right relationship with the earth, in cultures that have lost their shaman, mm. have lost even a term uh, for that role. Self-initiation, that's just really beautiful. Yes. Mm. And so and, and when I say self-initiation, I, I, again, I, I just want to emphasize that I mean by that mm -hmm. um, with you know, teachers guiding us, both spirit and human, with community holding us in that container so we actually have the support we need to be in that kind of, you know, get gooey in the chrysalis and then come out transformed <laughs> again and again. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. But not waiting for our culture to become a healthy culture that will initiate us, getting us yes. there I love that. It's like, to me, like, spirituality, I don't know, just when I think of spirituality, to me, it's like, it's taking responsibility, you know, like even now when we're given the opportunity to so-called reset from within, you know, like mm -hmm. with the situation that we're in now worldwide, it's just, you know, not necessarily waiting for the outside or the external or the exoteric to tell us what to do. It's just kind of like, we'll go within and, and, you know, nurture the spiritual aspect of yourself. And, you know, like one of the beautiful things I experienced just during COVID is that like, I've always had like a really beautiful connection to nature and I think I said this in my last podcast so sorry if anyone's already heard this I'm going to repeat myself for like a minute um I've always been I've always had this like magical like if I could explain what magic is to me it's like being in the presence with nature it's like oh I can't even explain it and recently in the past like two years um I just started noticing how beautiful squirrels are like beyond like oh my goodness um the, the way that they just like when they're rummaging around the, the dust the bins in my back garden they're just so playful <laughs> they're so playful and they're just like they remind me of little children just playing around and I was just like 
oh my goodness, you know, like if you just take the word squirrel away from this creature, or even if you look at, you know, like a pigeon or something, like if you just take like what we've decided this animal is and just look at it, this creature is so in the present moment. And all they're doing is just like experiencing the fullness of life. They're so beautiful. And like every time I watch them and like really observe them, and just observe that consciousness. I'm just like, oh my goodness, it's reflecting back to me what's within. And I'm just like, oh my God, does anybody else see this? Like, and that's because like, I've been able to kind of slow down a bit and be more in the present moment, you know, because obviously, you know, with what's happening worldwide, it's given us up that opportunity to you know, be at home more and just look outside of your window and have a look what's going on. You know? <laughs> so, yeah, but yeah, I mean, I've always had a connection to nature, but just that, um, and you're talking about flow just that that experience you can't buy it it's priceless it's just like when you're in the moment with yourself with nature you know with another human being and you're mirroring back to each other oh it's just so beautiful i just had to just say that absolutely <laughs> yeah i love that description of the squirrel people <laughs> that's so beautiful <laughs> yeah i mean i think that's a, a big part of of being in relationship that flow for me has also been mm. practices that help me to move out of the labels and names that you're talking about like that label squirrel yes. that makes this <laughs> this miraculous you know being that's on this planet with us seems so easy to sort of dismiss in a sense or just be like oh yeah that's a squirrel of course and just to these practices that help us like qigong for example is a, is a practice that's that's really yes. huge um, in, in how I work and, and just that way it helps us move into the formless energies before the human names and labels and really be in that deeper level of intimacy with life, the life around us. I love that. Actually, when I was reading about Qigong in your book, I actually went to YouTube and had a look at a few videos. Um, I want to incorporate that into my life because the, the park where I am, that I've seen three people over the past like five years, um, I, what, I think they're practicing Qigong. I think they are because, I mean, visually I can see what it is. And I've always got into these conversations about their own spiritual path and they were just all like, yeah, it's changed my life. And it's just like, oh, flow, be in the present moment. So, yeah, after reading your book, yeah, I, I, I want to look more deeply into that. Yeah. <laughs> Wonderful. Yeah. Well, what are triggers? I mean, this is kind of like going off topic a little, not off topic, but obviously there's a reason I'm asking you this, but what would you say triggers are and what do triggers show us? Yeah, I guess in the context of what we're just talking about, this flow of life, you know, if we understand that life isn't our nature, aren't something separate from us. That's like sort of this colonial construct. There's like nature over here and humanity over Mm -hmm. here, but that we are life and we are nature. And so just as life is ever unfolding and expanding and growing and evolving and changing, um, like, you know, ancestor Octavia Butler teaches us God has changed, you know, from parable to sower. Um, then when we, there's moments in our life, often in childhood, where we make a choice out of fear for our survival that is not in alignment with, the, with our true nature and our authenticity. So it's not in alignment with that natural sort of flow of life rising up through us and moving through our heart into expression. And when we make these choices out of fear for our survival, um, often out of fear of death, because for a child, you know, not being loved, 
feels like potential death, not you know, being yeah. alone, being isolated, being abandoned, being exiled, like all those things for a child can feel like death because a child is dependent upon the adults in their life for their survival to some extent. And so we might have one of these experiences and make a choice to do something that's not in alignment with that flow that we are because we want to avoid that death. We don't want to die. But then if that part of us gets sort of stuck making that same choice again and again because it's now stepped out of the flow of the living process that we are. And so mm -hmm. then in our life, we find people, when, you know, we find situations and people um, that might cause us to amp up or shut down in response to them. Um, and that's how I define a trigger, this experience of suddenly amping up out of proportion to what's actually happening or shutting down, withdrawing, judging, you know, out of proportion to what's actually happening or like spinning in our mind after something happened, thinking about what we could have said differently, like, you know, all that this is keeps sticking with us, the experience we had, you know, all those are signs to me of a trigger. And to me, that, that is life and our soul and our body conspiring to help us to notice these parts of ourselves that are stuck in these moments we made a choice out of fear to survive. Because in those moments of being triggered, we're almost sent back in time to that perspective of that self in that moment. And we make the same choice that we made in that moment. And so if we have tools, you know, one of the tools that I described in my book is the deep liberation process um, as, a, as a whole body of tools. Um, we can track the energy to its root where it first started inside of us. We first made that choice for our survival consciously or unconsciously and show up for that self that's stuck in that choice so they can make a new choice and come back into relationship with the living process. We are back into our wholeness and bring back their gifts and medicine that have been kind of trapped in that old memory. Mm. Other particular shamanic practices, um, I know you touched on shadow work in your book, I'm sure you did. Um, I've underlined quite a bit, actually, I just got the book in front of me. Um, yeah, so how, how, what specific um, shamanic practices, or you could just give one, really, if mm -hmm. it's not, you know, too time lengthy, and shadow work, um, just to heal those triggers, or just to even, not necessarily to heal, but just to process them, I suppose. Yeah. Well, I would say that we can heal our triggers. I think that yeah. um, a lot of contemporary psychology has a lot to do. Not that I, I'm against psychology. I think psycho psychology mm -hmm. and psychotherapy is wonderful. And I have a lot of colleagues who are therapists. And we often refer people back to each other. But mm -hmm. um, there can be, in a lot of popular psychology, there can be this sense that we can never really heal. Or we can never yeah. really heal our triggers. We can only learn to be in different relationship with them and learn to sort of manage them or sort of walk on eggshells around them or avoid them in our life. Or from more somatic modalities, sometimes there's this sense of these moments of trauma as something that's sort of a, almost a toxic substance in our body that we just need to discharge. But to me, I think yeah. sometimes... Oh, yeah, were you going to say something? No, sorry. I just wanted to just quickly say, just before you go on, I think what I was trying not to do when I, said, when I was saying... Um, process as opposed not I wasn't saying it as opposing to heal I think because I know for no, I'm going to say for a fact but I just know within myself that you can heal your triggers I used to I have a long list of things that I used to do to which I don't do anymore to actually um 
is it self-soothe? I don't know. When mm-hmm. I was triggered, I would do certain things like smoking and several other things. And mm-hmm. the moment when I started to really look at those um, vices or whatever I was using and then connect that to the root of why I was doing it and really work on that and take the time to really go into my emotional body and all of these different te- um, techniques and things that I've used to really get to the root of it, um, I've healed it for myself. Um, so I wasn't really saying it in a sense that I don't believe that we can heal. Do you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. Sorry, go ahead. <laughs> yeah, that's okay. Um, so I guess, I guess maybe it helps us to ground all this out of the abstract and into the just every day. Mm-hmm. So yes. for me, for example, um, I mean, there's a lot of stories I share in, in the book, but one you know, one example that comes to mind right now is just the experience I had of a trigger around um, an experience of racism that I mm-hmm. had, where where it felt like when I really got to the essence of what was happening after the experience I had of someone, you know, being racist, essentially, it felt what it what the essence of, of what it felt like was being done to me by that person. And that's how I begin sort of unpacking the gift of a trigger, asking what has been done to me. Mm-hmm. Um, I, it felt like I was being told I was taking up too much space, essentially. Yeah. Yeah. And so then if, if I'm being triggered, at least in the context of my way of looking at triggers and my teachings, it's that we, there's some way that that outer dynamic is mirrored in our inner dynamic. So it doesn't mean the person's not an asshole for doing what they did or saying what they did, but the <laughs> fact that our response wasn't just our natural, authentic response in the moment, but felt like something that was really amping up or shutting down um, in mm-hmm. response to it, that means that there's something inside for us to investigate. Mm-hmm. And that can sometimes be hard to discern in the moment, like what is my authentic emotional response? What is an amping up or shutting down out of proportion to what's happening? And so I just always assume there's something internal to investigate and then go from there, you know, and if there's not, <laughs> find that out pretty quickly. Um, yeah. But, uh, and so as I really investigated what was going on inside of me, what mm-hmm. I found was this younger me who was this, you know, little black kid who had just moved mm-hmm. from uh, New York City to, you know, white suburbia and where he was like one of the only black kids in his school. And yeah. he experienced a lot of racism, but he didn't have the context for, for racism at that time. And so mm-hmm. he really just experienced it as being told that there was something fundamentally wrong with him. And so he learned to sort of not take up too much space and hide a bit and sort of dissociate a bit to survive that environment. And so I had to sort of, I I was finding this all out by tracking these energies in my body using the felt sense in my body, that sort of deeper wisdom of my Mm. body. And through tracking that energy as it shape-shifted in my body, I found my way to this memory of this time in elementary school. I had no idea of this intellectually going in. It wasn't like an intellectual Mm -hmm. process. And then once I was there, I entered into that memory and I used the tools, the deep liberation process to really show up for that younger me as the adult self I was then, or I am now, um, and sense it, not assume I knew what he needed, but sense into with the felt sense of my body, what did that child self really need in that moment that he wasn't getting from his peers or the adults in his life? Mm 
Yeah. And what I found was he really, he just needed um, to feel safe being who he was. There's this beautiful um, Essex Hempel quote, you know, I love myself enough to be who I am. And that mm. was really the energy he needed, this sense of like protective container of love that helped him to know that it was safe to just rest into his body and just be himself. There's nothing fundamentally wrong with him that it was the other people that had a problem. Yes. And as I was able to show up for him, he just naturally started moving into his own enthusiasm for life and curiosity mm. and bigness. And, and then that energy was able to be brought back more fully into me. And I ended up mm. genuinely great, grateful for the racist asshole who had said the thing to me <laughs> because like, <laughs> and not in like some self-righteous way, but just really like, wow, yeah, I, love that. I didn't yeah. realize I was carrying that level of internalized racism in myself still. Yeah. And that experience allowed me to track back and find that me so I could come more into my own wholeness. Mm. To rest in our own body. Yeah. Being safe. Exactly. I love that. That's beautiful. That's beautiful. Thank you so much. Yeah. From a shamanic perspective, what is our soul's purpose? I do ask this a lot with people and I love to get mm -hmm. the variation of the perspective there and I'd love to get the shamanic perspective. Yeah. Um, I would love to go there. I just want to quickly loop back for a second. Yes. To, I, I realized I forgot half of your question. I got a little distracted about the oh, trigger point. You're asking about shadow work. So I just want to touch on that. Yes, please and, do. Yeah, and say that, um, so for many people in contemporary culture today, how we use the term shadow work, which originally comes out of Jungian psychology and theory, um, yeah. is, is based on only half of his definition in a sense it's like this mm. this withdrawing of projections that i was just talking about it's like we have an unconscious way we've othered a part of ourselves. we're then projecting that onto other people and so one way of talking about shadow work is to withdraw those projections and find their roots within ourselves and show up for them and integrate them and so in a sense that's what i just talked about in my story of healing a trigger but to me that's not really how i talk about shadow work i think that's actually just what i might call well, deep liberation work or clearing work, you know, this, oh, this, this, this is basic work of, of integration as a human being. But to me, shadow work is when there's these parts of us that have been sort of thrown into a dungeon inside of our unconscious by our mind, because our mind oh. decides it's not safe for me to embody this part of myself. We throw away the key. And then this part of ourselves is forced to watch our life from the sidelines um, without any agency in our conscious self. So, they can only move through our unconsciousness. So of course they grow twisted and monstrous over time, like anyone who's been given an unfair trial and thrown in a dungeon would. And they then can only move through sort of intense fear responses, like giving us intense fear, intense attraction towards people who are like forces to see these parts of ourselves. Oh, or, yes. Oh uh, yeah, we all know those relationships. <laughs> yes. Wow, well, I just uh, love the way that you vocalize that. I was just like, oh my God, yes. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> or there's um, or through sort of self sabotage, like these unconscious ways we sabotage ourselves, which is coming through the shadow often. And mm. so, to me, that requires different tools than just this inner work of going going within to your inner landscape and kind of working with these younger selves. To me, that kind of shadow work requires larger ritual processes. Um, that include like using our creativity, mask work, dance work, 
and also just working with certain helping spirits that know how to navigate the shadow realms and get us through the back doors into our shadow or to work with a practitioner who can sort of retrieve those selves for us so that we're not, because we, by design, our mind makes it really hard for us to act as our own shadow. <sighs> I love that. You know what's coming to my mind? I mentioned this in a podcast that I did when I was speaking about, I'm sure it was about autism. I'm not too sure. Um, when you were talking there about um, uh, the parts that have, that have um, uh, gone you know gone into a dungeon immediately the scene i don't know if you've seen the movie super eight with elf Fanning. um no i haven't i don't think yeah it's about this group of kids and they end up finding this monster and the monster ends up kidnapping one of the kids and as the monster's trying to the monster's actually not harmful the child actually connects to the monster and notices the monster and says look i see you you know you don't have to be afraid and the monster opens its eyes and there's a connection between the child and the monster. And it reminds me, it's so beautiful. The monster actually then just puts the child down and then goes back to a spaceship. Um, after the, the monster's, you know, I think the monster just wants to be seen, which again, that could be a part of our shadow. I don't know. Mm. It reminds me of, <laughs> it reminds me of, um, well, it's actually a very similar storyline to Stranger Things. And this came mm. up years before Stranger Things and I'm reminded of the demigorgon or the monster from Stranger Things and I, I mm -hmm. always think I always think that characters are all different aspects of our psyche that's the way I see movies anyway mm -hmm. um, <laughs> and I had a look at the word demigorgon and I from what I know I've not done too much research it actually means demon or deity so mm -hmm. when you look at that perfect balance of the demon within and then the divine within it's like, it's kind of like well yeah that makes sense to look at those parts that we've literally put in this dungeon within you know it's it's mm -hmm. quite beautiful when you look at it so that yeah that's beautiful what you just said there thank you yeah yeah <laughs> and so my own process you know i have, we have classes at the at the last mass center that work with sort of leading people through a process it's actually really fun mm -hmm. of uncovering these shadow parts and retrieving them with each other you know for other people for each other and then working with them together to transform them into the allies they were always meant to be and integrating mm. them into the wholeness of who we are. Um, so that's how I think, in short, you know, about shadow work. Obviously, like a much bigger topic, but that's kind of like the oh, elevator no. speech. <laughs> we could be here all day talking yeah. about shadow work. Because obviously, I'm really into Jungian psychology as well. Mm -hmm. And actually, at the moment, I'm doing a bit of training with um, the IFS model. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. You know, the internal family systems model. Yeah. And when we were talking about it, I was like, this is just, it just sounds like Jungian psychology. It, just, it all sounds like, from from different things that I read, it's almost like it's all the same thing, but communicated in various ways. And I'm not saying that it is. Obviously, it's very Americanized, the IFS, isn't it? But um, I love the aspect of these different parts of our psyche and how we might, you know, for example, when we're anxious, it's just a part of us that's anxious, and we can we can look at that part of the psyche and just um, try and bring that eternal presence of. I am or just be you know being here now with yourself and in, in allowing that uh, what do they call it allowing that essence to soothe that part of us that is afraid or that part of us this is going to be a trigger word now for anybody that's yeah that a part of us that might feel suicidal or a part of us that might might feel hatred to somebody else it's, it's really okay. just a part of you 
that hates that person or a part of you that doesn't like another part of somebody else. Do you know what I mean? So absolutely, yeah. yeah that's a huge part of a part of the the inner work that I do is that that connection to what you might call compassionate presence, that yes. willingness to step into the big you who yeah. just, just slightly bigger, even just like one step away from a feeling you're having that can hold all of it, that can acknowledge and say hello to that you that's holding that feeling and, and, and acknowledge that there's so many feelings that we have inside of us. So we're not any one of our feelings at any given moment. We're something bigger than that. And that changes things, doesn't it? Because, you know, for the most part, you know, you go and see, I don't know, uh, a psychiatrist or something, and maybe you, you might get a label for something, and it mm-hmm. it kind of, like, shuts a lot of the rest of you off, because that's not just, you're not just that one part of you, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's very interesting. If, if, if we could see things from, from, you know, just even, I would highly recommend this book, by the way, by Langston, it's Deep Liberation, Shamanic Teachings for Reclaiming Wholeness in a Culture. We'll put the link down below if you don't mind. Um, and if we worked with these various parts of ourselves and really brought, like, love to that part, or like you said, what, what you used the term, you said compassionate presence, um, we would have so much inner standing of ourselves as, as whole beings rather than this is my label and it ends here and I'm hopeless. It's like, yeah. 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 I think labels can be really helpful and comforting at first because mm. they can give voice or words to something that's just felt like our identity for a lot of our life, like who we are. Yes. And they're like, oh no, it's not just that I'm just fundamentally flawed or not measuring up to some standard, but I have this disorder or I have this disease, you know, like, the, or, or I am this type of person. But, and so I think it can be really useful to begin to find community and people who share our experience. And then we can look for how these other people navigate life with these mm. types of symptoms. But I think the danger in that is like a core fun- foundation of, of shamanism is understanding that just because two people are presenting the same symptoms does not mean they have the same root cause of those symptoms. Ooh, and so wow. when we identify with those symptoms and make them, uh, make them our identity, that can be very limiting, like you're saying, um, because we can assume that if I have this problem and this person's problem, that means we have the same problem when actually one person might be caused by unresolved ancestral trauma that needs to be addressed the other one might be caused by something that happened in their childhood and the third person might be caused by a deep um elemental imbalance caused by the land that they're living on you know those three things have very different um ways that are needed like modalities that are needed to address those problems at the root of the symptoms and so mm. if you don't get comfortable identifying with the label it can, it can feel like a dead end this is just who i am this is my identity and then, like you said, really beautifully articulated, um, it others the rest of our being, the true essence yes. of who we are. Um, and so even outside of psychological labels, I think mm-hmm. anyone at some point in their healing process has experienced trauma, which I think is most of us at this point yeah. in the world <laughs> at this time. Um, yeah. they, wow. there's, we need to reach it, or there, there comes a point in our healing process I've found where we need to even look at the idea of being traumatized as an other identity we need to start to work with and engage and be suspicious of and see like, how does it serve me to hold on to this identity of being traumatized and 
can I find that self that I'm holding separate from me as the traumatized self and bring also that into my wholeness? I love what you said that um, how it being useful for us to have these labels, you know, to, to understand the, the, you said the symptoms, right? Mm-hmm. I think you said symptoms. Yeah. But um, in that, yeah, we don't all share that root of why we're like that. That's very interesting. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. I mean, the other danger in that when we're, we're getting caught up in the psychological labels, like ADHD, for example, is we start to almost collude as individuals um, like, oh, I'm a group of people that have these symptoms and this label means I am this type of way versus looking at what are the larger cultural forces that are contributing to many people having these symptoms. And how can we being sat in a classroom all day? Yeah. Yeah, being yeah, sat exactly. in a classroom all day and being told because you can't sit down at a chair that it means you've got ADHD. <laughs> well, why are we still sat down in a classroom after how many years when everything else evolves, but the classroom doesn't? Interesting. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and so when you talked about um, what is soul's purpose, I mean, that's kind of the reason I think the, these uh, labels of identity, any label of identity, can be so dangerous um and useful like like i i am a black queer man those are labels that are really useful to me yeah and i know at my essence i am that and i'm more than that um that none of those things define the whole of who i am at my essence and so to me that is our soul's purpose from a shamanic perspective um Mm. this unique energy that you came to earth to be that can only be embodied in this one lifetime that if you don't embody it, it will never be seen again, um, and it'll never be another chance. So the universe itself is depreciated by that energy not being embodied. A certain facet of the divine never got to know itself. <gasps> wow. The divine didn't get to know itself. I mean, that's deep. I mean, if you take anything from this podcast, just take that. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that yeah. was deep. <laughs> and so I don't think of soul's purpose as like... Um, you know, to do something, like to be a teacher, to be a healer, um, because mm-hmm. those are just vehicles for that unique mm-hmm. energy that we are. I remember there was this moment, yes. yeah, there's this moment where I had, I was doing this really intense period of, of ecstatic dance over like hours when I, when I had gone through this like big ritual process. And it was like the culmination of this like five-year process of transformation I had been on. Mm-hmm. And I just felt in this moment all of my ancestors from many different cultures surrounding me and them share with me your per- like this is your purpose essentially like they like they like I, it wasn't the whole of my purpose you can't ever put that into words but it was like one phrase that felt like a huge part of my purpose and instantly I wanted to say okay how do I do that how do I do that thing how do I go do that thing and they're like no stop we're telling you who you are we're telling you who you can't help but be. Your job is not to go learn how to do this thing. Your job is to make sure whatever you do, you choose to do it as who you are, as this thing we have just told you. Mm. I love that. And how does trauma and fear-based stories that we hold on to hold us back from our soul's purpose? I mean, obviously, it's pretty, pretty obvious how that does, but yeah. Yeah, I mean, I guess... What we, in some ways, it, it really depends. It's hard to say in one, one word because in some ways, what we've been talking about, you know, that turning away from the living energy that we are in a moment of trauma, 
like trauma mm-hmm. not being what happens to us because two people could experience the same thing and one person leaves with trauma and one person doesn't but yeah because they do say i'm sorry I, yeah, you know, they do okay. say that it's not even the experience that's traumatizing it's it's how we i mean i'm not saying that i agree with this i'm just saying it's a perspective that um it's how we either respond to it or experience the memory of it over and over. I don't know. It's just something to think about. I don't know. Yeah, I think of it in, in my way of experience in my life and, and in my mm. work with um, you know, clients and students is that it's really, it's the stories we carry about what happened to us that yes. inform the choices we make on a daily basis and the beliefs we hold. And, and so those underlying stories that we take away from experiences become the trauma itself um, because they're stories that are not quite in alignment with the, the bigger, you know, capital T truth of things or the bigger truth of our essence of who we are. Mm. Like, you know, if I really show up as my true self, I will be crushed because we had yeah. this one experience where that happened, you know, as a child or, if I um, fully share my voice, um, I'll be exiled. You know, like mm-hmm. all these different stories that we can carry with us from experiences that happen in our childhood that are sort of operating underneath the surface very insidiously informing what we do in our lives as an adult, mm-hmm. even though we're no longer in those circumstances we were as a child. And that's how I think about trauma. Mm. How do indigenous cultures teach us about transformation? Or should I, should I reword that as how does shamanism teach us about transformation? I don't know, whichever one's more. Um, yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's hard because there's many indigenous cultures and there's many shamanisms. So I don't want to give one mm-hmm. blanket answer necessarily. But what I'll say about how I think about the time that we're living in is we're, we're in a time mm. where getting really good at transformation is essential. You know, one very small level, getting really good at changing our minds is essential. (laughs) Um, But on a bigger level that we need to be, I think, on this exponential curve of transformation to be able to um, work to navigate the kind of apocalypse we're in, in a sense. Apocalypse being an end of the world. Yes. You know, we need to we need to be able to do this work of really fully releasing the old stories from the old culture that no longer serves us and stepping into a new way of being that is rooted in a more audacious vision of love or at least a you know a more true relationship <sighs> with the earth and its stories versus our small human stories about the earth that when played out in reality often don't really work. Like the idea of, you know, scientific materialism, that we're just these, um, you know, hopelessly isolated beings on a dead <laughs> rock floating through space um, with no agency or meaning. Um, mm. That story doesn't work. When you, when you play it out, you can see what happened over the last 300 years based on that story to humanity. You know, mm. so we need to come back to these bigger stories that the earth is trying to tell through us. Um, Mm -hmm. And I think that requires this, this transformation, this, this ability to engage in sort of ritual that, Mm -hmm. that creates transformation and co-creation with spirit. 
um, this ability to engage in community and to form a communal wisdom body where we can, we can let find a balance between our individual needs and communal needs and see how those can come into symbiotic relationship versus being at odds with each other. This is a random question that I wanted to throw in. Um, how do we heal when our wounded parents try and keep us bound within their own wounds? Mm-hmm. It's a really hard situation to be in. And I think it's a situation that many people find themselves in because we're in the situation, we're in the um, state of things where, as I've said, we've abandoned initiation into adulthood. So mm-hmm. most people raising children are not what I would consider from a more indigenous context, spiritual adults themselves. Um, you mm-hmm. know, most of us are walking around with the emotional bodies of children, at least from the standard of an indigenous culture, of a pre-contact indigenous culture specifically. Um, and so... What that means is that it's, yeah, it's very tricky to navigate our own individuation um, when in some ways our, our parents are still walking around with parts of themselves that haven't fully come into this coherent wholeness and alignment with their purpose, alignment with their ancestors, alignment with the earth. Um, and so really though, I found in my own life what the, the worst part is not so much what our parents do or do not do, but the, the power we give them because of the ways we're still stuck looking to them to be our parents. Mm. Like I think it's really on us as children to release them from that burden. That oh. like in an indigenous context, you know, in initiation to adulthood, you're being supported by elders in your community dropping your family of origin baggage and and stepping more into this relationship with like the earth as mother and the sky as father or vice versa or other sort of spirit relationships so you can let your parents just be other humans in community with you and not be your parents anymore oh, and beautiful. so beautiful wow yeah sorry just wow just no, wow. okay yeah yeah, yeah. Yeah, so I think that's what's on us to, to use our tools to, to try to get there, to try to get to the place where we're no longer blaming our parents for anything we're doing or experiencing mm-hmm. in our adult life and able to relate to them as best we can, just as other human beings on this earth with us. That's beautiful. I've never actually heard anybody communicate that. That was just beautiful, just to see them as human beings. Mm-hmm. It's, just, it's just absolutely beautiful. How do we open to the body's wisdom? I know you mentioned the emotional body there. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, so one way we open to the body's wisdom, I mean, obviously a big, it's a big topic. I mean, I think <laughs> grounding is really yes. important, learning to get into the body, get connected to the earth, get in the present moment, as you were talking about before. Um, mm-hmm. But, and having a coherent energy body is important, like a coherent structure of our grounding, our connection to the above, our strong, healthy boundaries, a connection with our inner space. You know, these, these are really helpful to, be, to begin to allow us to trust our body's wisdom and be in a reliable relationship with it. But mm-hmm. on a very basic level, if that all sounds kind of complicated and hard, for me, the first place of connecting with the body's wisdom was just that compassionate presence, that self and presence we talked about earlier. Um, for me, that came a lot first into my life, the lineage of inner relationship focusing that I was taught 
um, but my mother later in life, um, was a really gifted, uh, teacher of that work. And I, the basics of that way of looking at things is learning to be with the felt sense in our body. Understanding that the felt sense is this knowing beyond words that communicates to us through the symbol. And a symbol can be an image, an emotion that comes, a physical sensation, an intuitive knowing, you know, a scent. Um, just all the ways our inner senses communicate with us. But if we can sort of tune into that felt sense and then invite it to communicate with us and then listen to the symbols it sends and describe them without trying to sort of label them or explain them or analyze them, just describing them as they are and testing that description against the feeling in our body of that felt sense, we begin to come into relationship with our body's wisdom and it begins to share with us more and more. Hmm. So that for example... Oh, yeah, oh, sorry, we... sorry, sorry. <laughs> no, no, no. It just reminds me of the song Blue Sky Mind by Trevor Hall, mm. where he's say where he's singing in the song In and Through the Body. Mm-hmm. I found mm-hmm. I found in and through the body, it's in and through the body all along. Ah, uh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> That's certainly been my experience a lot. I mean, I think that a beautiful yeah. thing about shamanism is um the attention to the different wisdom bodies of the mind, the emotions, the spirit, and the physical body as all being equally important. And there's this way that the physical body, I think, in these times is especially important to attend to because it's been so dominated by the mind, the controlling sort of immature ego mind. And it um, is so dematerialized in our virtual world right now. We're becoming more and more distant from that wisdom. So I think we have a need to really prioritize that that deep body wisdom right now in our culture so that we can um, get in touch with the wisdom that's a little more stable, a little more connected to the earth, less shifting and changing like our emotions and our mind and less vulnerable to hijacking like those other wisdoms. Yes. So in terms of healing our energy body and freeing our energy, because when I think about how I've even um, become more outspoken about being queer and healing my own energy, I realized, oh, freeing my energy really actually means, um, for me personally, expressing this queer side of myself. Do you personally think that when we're healing our energy body and freeing our energy, that that actually relates to the LGBTQ experience? I don't even know if I'm actually asking that question correctly um yeah yeah um absolutely i mean i think it's almost like the opposite direction i would go in that (sighs) there's so many ways the constructs of whiteness and the constructs of you know heteropatriarchy or these sort of like you know says norms can keep us out of relationship with our actual mm. authentic energy body because yes. to, all of those systems are very pay to play. Like for example, to even just taking being a man in contemporary culture to receive mm-hmm. the, you know, patriarchal capital given to men to some extent, you have to cut off parts of yourself to survive. Um, 
or for at least many of us do in those systems, you have to, you have to like, you know, pay into those systems, be willing to other others and willing to other parts of yourself to fit into those systems and receive the rank privilege and power those systems afford people that are, you know, cis men. And so when we are other than that master narrative of, of like when we are queer, when we are, you know, black, I think those identities give us spaciousness to explore our own pleasure. Like what kind of energy body brings us pleasure if we choose to prioritize and embody those identities in our lives because they have less fixed roles in this master narrative associated with them and less rank, privilege, and power that's given for embodying those identities. So you more are free to, um, I, I think like in some ways, Queer, my queerness and my blackness help make me less vulnerable to these sort of cookie cutter systems that would have dominated and, and, and shaped my energy body in ways that were out of alignment with my authenticity. Yes. Is there anything you'd like to say or share to the LGBTQ community? Just about anything. <laughs> you don't um, have to. You could just say hi. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's just funny. We're thinking about. It. I think what makes you laugh is thinking of it even as like one community. You know, no, <laughs> I like know, so many I different know. Communities. But I know. um, but I, but yeah, hi. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> I think I think what I might say is um, in the dagger culture of Burkina Faso, um which I've learned about primarily through um, Elder Maladoma Somme, who recently passed, and Sobonfu Somme, who has also passed. Um, they were two um, really beautiful Dagara teachers. Dagara teachers. Mm -hmm. um, they, one way they think about queer people in their culture is that there's these people that are called gatekeepers. And there are people in the culture that are known to tend relationships that are really intimate with certain energies that are essential for the thriving and survival of the village, of the culture, of the community. And so, for example, one might be someone who tends a water spirit shrine that's really important to the village or an earth shrine. You know, like these, these people who are known to have this special gift for tending these shrines and these energies relationships. And... Those pe because, as you find in many indigenous cultures, those people still are expected to, you know, have kids and contribute to the gene pool. And but um, mm. they also will like sort of go off at certain times of year to um, do whatever they do in secret. You know, in the, in the mm -hmm. not necessarily the ideal queer utopia. I might I might think of, but, <laughs> but there's this understanding that if the gatekeepers aren't given that role in the village, if the queer folks aren't given this role of tending the relationship with these sacred energies on behalf of the community, the community mm -hmm. will be destroyed. Mm -hmm. And so I look at our culture and I think of the ways that, that we, we so often sort of marginalize queer folks to sort of support the dreams of mm -hmm. others or, or just deny them um, other them and deny them, you know, roles in different types of spirituality. And so mm. I just, I, when I'm speaking to the, the LGBTQ community, I just, I just want to encourage us to remember our roles 
as gay people, our roles as being in relationship with the true energies, however that looks like in our life, that can look so many different ways. It doesn't mean you're, you know, being the, the stereotypical role or cliche of what it means to be like witchy or something. It just, mm-hmm. what, what are the sacred energies you, what are the essence energies you feel most intimate with that are most important in your life to tend? And how might you just put more of your time and resources and priority on your relationship with those energies? And who are the loved ones and communities that you wish to tend those energies on behalf of, to bring those energies into as a sacred bearer of and speaker for those energies and those essences? Beautiful. Thank you so much for that. Um, Thank you. What can we do? I suppose I don't even think I mean do now because I'm thinking be, do, be. Yeah, <laughs> what can maybe we do I could create? guide us in a, um, <laughs> yeah. Because we're talking about the earth so much and flow. Maybe I'll just guide us in a brief um, grounding exercise. So a simple yes, grounding please. exercise. That was yeah. going to be my next question. Yes, thank you so much. Okay. Oh, I'm sorry. And I realized you were going to ask a different question. <laughs> Should we go back to their question? <laughs> um, <laughs> What could we do to create a world free from oppression? I mean, that's um, a really big question, but I suppose it's relating to, and I don't even know if you've kind of answered that already in terms of like, yeah, I think you already did in terms of speaking about now's the time to transform, to go through transformation in regards to what's currently happening. Yeah, I mean, that is a big part of my answer to that question that we need to divest from these oppressive systems that we're inhabiting and Mm. systems are made up of individuals systems are made up of people there's no like sort of magical oppressor on one side and the good people on the other side you know we're all entangled hopelessly in these harmful systems and perpetuating them through our choice to continue being complicit with them so i think how we how we begin to shift those larger systems is through through one making individual choices to look at the ways those systems live inside of us you know where's the cop in our head basically that kind of thinking and <laughs> how do we begin to to remove these systems of domination and control and extraction from ourselves like where are the ways that we're in those relationships with ourselves that we need to shift and change or others in our life that we need to shift and change and really practicing our values and our principles um on that local level and then beyond that there's this need as we learn those skills, those tools of withdrawing our projections, you know, unpacking the gifts and our triggers and removing these harmful narratives that we carry due to our being traumatized by these systems or by our experiences in our life, we then need to also learn how to use these skills to move as collectives because individuals can't change systems, only collectives can really. And so we need mm-hmm. to learn how do we move as collectives? How do we move as collectives that aren't just going to collapse every year through shadow and projections being flown around and, you know, canceling and anger and just unresolved trauma how do we cultivate the resilience needed to move together as a people and begin to meet our collective needs outside Mm -hmm. of these oppressive systems Mm -hmm. and to me that's 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 what i'm trying to do in my life at least as one small answer to what it means to create a world free from oppression it's just beautiful thank you And you said you wanted to do a grounding technique. Yeah, sure. It's perfect. 
So just take a moment to get comfortable wherever you are as a listener. Settling into your body, taking a few deep breaths in your own timing. And as you breathe, just feeling the weight of your body being supported by your chair and the earth rising up to hold you and meet you wherever you are. Beginning to feel the air on your skin. And turning your awareness inward into your head, taking a deep breath there. And into your heart, taking a deep breath there. Into your belly, taking a deep breath there. to find yourself in a pond in your pelvis, your sacral area, a bowl of your being. Just imagine a pond on a sunny day with a lily pad, a leaf flower floating on it. And begin to send your awareness down down, down. Letting that little plant spirit of the lily and its big, thick root stem teach you how easy it can be to connect to the earth. Just follow that thick stem down into the cooler waters, down to the muck of the rotting leaves and Frogs' eggs and all the squishy things, the rich, fertile mush, and continuing down even deeper, feeling how easy it can be to form your own grounding cord from your body down to the land where you are, the earth where you are. Just root down, continuing to breathe deeply, slowly. Begin to move into the bedrock on the land where you are, these ancient land formations that have seen ice ages, seen millennia, still maintain their essence of stability and foundation. Move into that stable structure. Remember it can be easy. That plants root through hard things all the time. Just feel that sense of foundation that rises up from within. And notice if that bedrock has any messages for you about your own foundation at this time. 
continue down deeper, deeper into the earth being itself. Just feeling that connection to that vast intelligence, that vast wisdom of how to support transformation. All the transformation we've been talking about, this slow incremental change of the weather, of the seasons, the light, the air. Feeling how you might support change in your own life at this time, slowly, incrementally. Letting the earth guide you. Noticing if the messages come in images or physical sensations or emotions. Just being with them with curiosity and compassion. Thanking the earth and continuing down even deeper this place of stillness and darkness and silence and solitude. All those energies needed for true restoration. You might see this place, this original dream of the earth as a kind of silver, luminous pool in that darkness. Just let yourself anchor there. Feel the relief of that anchoring. This is where your grounding cord has been seeking. Begin to draw out that silver energy up through the earth being up, through the bedrock up, your feet and your grounding cord, breathing it into your body, into your pelvis, your legs, your torso, all of you, sending that silver energy to the sore places, the achy places, the tired places, letting it soothe and replenish you. Feeling how it's like a fountain cycling up into your body and then cycling back down into the earth. And just breathing for a moment in that flow with the earth. As you begin to come back into the space you're inhabiting, wiggling your fingers and toes, just noticing the environment around you, just remember that you are an essential part of the earth, that you have a right to be here and take up space, that we need you, that you were dreamed to this planet for a reason. And I offer you gratitude for choosing to come here at this time.
and bring your medicine. Beautiful. Thank you, Langston. Yeah, thank you so much. That was just so beautiful. I was just in it's uh, the evening here in the UK, and I was just like, oh, I'm like zoning out now. So <laughs> thank you. Yeah. Thank you so much for that. I really appreciate that. Do you have, um, thank you, do you have like a website or where can people find you? Yeah, people can find me. about your book as well, sorry. Yeah. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. People can find me at uh, langstoncon.com. Uh, my mm -hmm. book is available to my publisher, North Atlantic Books. It's also available um, on Amazon or any of the usual places that you'd find um, books. Uh, mm -hmm. It's the title again is Deep Liberation, Shamanic Tools for Reclaiming Wholeness in a Culture of Trauma. Mm -hmm. um and uh people yeah can go to my website langstoncon.com just my name and uh i offer both individual sessions and also courses as well mm -hmm. oh thank you so much thank you so much sorry i'm just getting zoned out now Oh, yeah, don't be sorry. Yeah, I know. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just like, I'm trying to end this podcast, for, well, it's not a podcast conversation, but I'm just really zoned out. Thank you for that. I actually need yeah. a grounding today. Like, mm -hmm. my energy's been all over the place. Thank you. I'm basically yeah. saying thank you on behalf of everybody else that's probably zoned mm -hmm. out right now. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, thank you so much, Amy Letitia. It's been really wonderful talking with you. I appreciate you having me. Oh, and you too. Thank you so much. Thank you. <laughs>